Uh, Jeff, do you want to open us with a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that you've left us with. Thank you for getting us up this morning. Lord, may we open our hearts and minds to your word as Pastor Reach, Reach teaches us this morning or read to us. Lord, I just thank you for your word. Lord, it, I can't even imagine what it would be like to do without it. I just thank you for it. Please bless our time together here that we might learn something. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing through on uh, on studying of the end times or eschatology, as it is called by the theologians. Uh, last week, we were studying um, what is known as premillennial eschatology, um, and I, I was kind of trying to think about how we could make these a little bit more concise and understandable. Uh, the, and I would say the, the premillennial view of, of the end times is the, is the in, in a lot of ways, it's the literalist view, where you read through Revelation and you, you, it's in chronological order, and when it says a thing, that's what it means. And it's just like really straightforward, um, really... Um, of course, there's, there's, they have to bring in um, other things from other parts of Scripture. But, I mean, Revelation is obviously the main place that we go to figure out our, our particular end times ideas. Um, so, yeah, so like an example is, you know, you go through the book of Revelation and it comes to 144,000 and you assume that that is a literal 144,000 people, right? Um, the, the view that we're going to study today uh, is the less literal, more symbolic, where it reads through the book of Revelation and it, and it takes into account um, symbolism uh, and tries to make sense of the symbolic nature of Revelation and tries to formulate some sort of... Un of understanding based on that. Um, and then the, the post-millennial view uh, is, is symbolic, but it's in a different way. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, it's uh, bound up in this, in, a, in an idea called preterism, which uh, is something that we'll learn about next week when, when my brother Forrest comes to, to teach us about it. Um, because preterism is this idea that uh, most, if not all, of the end times prophecies that we read in the Bible were fulfilled by 70 AD um, yeah. at the destruction of Jerusalem. So um, that's that's where that perspective comes in. And so, um, and, and like I say, he'll explain it a lot better. Um, I mean, obviously there are, there is still going to be an end, right? And so the the preterist people are not foolish in the sense that they are denying that there's going to be an, an end, right? Everybody, every, like, a, you know, uh, and I think it's important to start with every Orthodox Christian, every single Christian, legitimate Christian, believes that Jesus is coming back visibly, bodily, you know, and, and that there is going to be a resurrection of the dead, and he's going to remake the new heavens and the new earth. 
Okay, so those are those are big concepts that we can all agree on. What's that? Well, you're pretty good at making bad jokes. Um, <laughs> you betcha. Um, hi, Steve. Hi. Welcome. Thanks. Uh, so every, every Orthodox Christian believes those things. How, how it all comes together in the end is what's up for debate, right? And so that's what I'm trying to present to you in, in these three uh, Sunday schools is just the different ideas on how it's it's going to come to an end and and we talked a lot last week about why bother studying these things and why should we care right and and what difference does it really make and i was thinking about that question a lot this week um and i think i think it does make a big difference in the way that you see things in the way that you do in the way that you think about jesus and the way that you think about the promises of god because um the more uh, uh, premillennial view, uh, or the, you could say the literalist view, or whatever you want to call it, would, would see a distinction between ethnic Israel and the church. And that the promises that God made to ethnic Israel are still going to stand, right? And that someday, after the church has, is gone, the Israel, the ethnic Jews are going to be, or, or in a sense, God is going to go back to dealing with them primarily rather than the church and the Gentiles. That's a, you know, and, and maybe not everybody who believes that literalist view would say that, but that does play a very significant role in the things that you believe. And so when we talk about, for example, the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7, it says 144,000 are sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And so in that sense, you're, if you're reading it from a literalist perspective, then what you believe about that is that the church is going to either be gone or is going to be working alongside Israel, okay? And so that will impact the way that you see politics. It'll impact the way that you read the news and, and see the things that are happening in, in Israel, you know, because in 19... Was it 1969 or 1967? Seven years war. Yeah. Or that Israel became a nation? Oh, okay. 1947. 1947. 1947. Yeah. That Israel became a nation, right? And so when that happened, there were a lot of people who took the more literalist perspective on Revelation and they were like, well, this is a sign that the end is coming. And so we need to be ready, right? And so it has kind of impacted the mentality of, of what the church ought to do going forward for a lot of people. Right. If you take the more symbolic view, bound up in that view in a lot of ways is the idea that um, the church is the true Israel. That there isn't a distinction between God's people in the Old Testament and God's people in the New Testament. And so that, that, that will impact the way that you read the whole Bible. Right. If you believe that that the Jews still have a significant um, future as, as an ethnic people, that's going to impact the way that you read because you're going to take certain promises that God has made and some of them will apply to us and some of them won't, right? And, and so it'll, it'll impact your, your view of the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. It'll create, it, 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 it can at times create a divide 
between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Because people will say, well, those are Old Testament promises. Those are Old Testament laws. And they only applied to the people in the Old Testament. Now we have the New Testament. We have the New Covenant. And so we don't have to, like, we can gain a lot from the Old Testament. But we don't need the, we don't need to be obedient to everything in the Old Testament. Right? And What for? Why not? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> we, like we have a new covenant, that's why. Yeah. But no, not not one dot, not one title shall pass away. Jesus so, said, "Do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." Mm -hmm. So why not? Well, yeah. So see, this can impact it, right? This can impact you know the way that you read the Bible and the way that you see. The relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament will impact the way that you read Revelation, right? It'll it'll impact, you know, all of these things are bound together. So it is important for us to to think carefully about these things. Um, so are we supposed to like sacrifice a goat when we sin, like like the Old Testament says? Uh, you know, like the flock of Moses had to do with you know, in, in Numbers and so on. That's right. Yeah, you know, there's there's an awful lot of rules on the books there. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah. So let's just we throw out let's just throw out the Old Testament, right? Yeah, no, no, <laughs> no, and 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 so if you you know if you look at it from so what we're we getting, what we're going to be studying today is amillennialism, amillennialism. Um, so what we were studying last week was premillennialism, and so all of this is in relation to the return of Christ. So premillennialism believes that Jesus will return pre or before the millennium. Okay, um, the the postmillennial position believes that Jesus will return post after the millennium. Uh, the amillennial perspective, the word "aw" or like the "a" in something uh, means none, right? Which is a little bit misleading because then it, it seems to well, people will characterize amillennial people as denying the the reality of a passage of scripture, right? Um, which isn't true because we do believe in a millennium. It's just not uh, not exactly the same as what people think of in in their heads. We we think that we come at it from a different perspective. That's what I'll say. Um, so we do believe in a millennium. It's a uh, slander uh, to accuse uh, all millennial people of not believing in a millennium because it's not true. We do believe in a millennium. We just see it differently. So, um, so uh, all that to say, let's, let's look at the uh, symbolic uh, reading of the, of the end times. Um, and talk about the the reasons that people believe the things that they do. So, um, we're going to start Matthew twenty eight eighteen. Jesus has just risen from the dead. Uh, he has appeared to his disciples. Uh, he's given he's a, and he's about to give them their final instructions. Um, Matthew chapter twenty eight, if I can get there. Which I can't. Matthew 28. Okay. Matthew 28 in verse 18. Jesus is speaking to them. And he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the, the primary verse that I'm highlighting there is Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that means that Jesus is ruling. Jesus has been given all authority. Jesus is the king of kings. Um, Romans 8.34. Romans 8.34. The apostle Paul is speaking to his people and talking about the hope that we have. And it says in, in Romans 8.34, Who is to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at, at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so this, this is the idea. The idea is that the millennial reign began at the resurrection or at the ascension. So there, there is a, a little bit of a discrepancy between what, what people think. Some people would say that um, because when Jesus rose from the dead, he, in that sense, conquered death, um, that therefore that was kind of the beginning you know, and, and before he even went into heaven, he said, all authority has been given to me. Um, on the other hand, it's like, well, he, when he goes up to heaven, he sits down at the right hand of God, right? And so when he sits down, the work is done, he's reigning, right? Um, and so, it, but either way, it doesn't really matter because in the end, Jesus is still ruling and reigning. And so the idea is that the millennial reign where Jesus is sitting on his throne ruling happened, began at his, we'll say, ascension. Um, and so the idea is that Jesus is uh, ruling and reigning. And so, yeah, so in, in the book of Revelation, when it talks about thrones, it, it almost, I don't think it ever talks about earthly thrones. It talks about heavenly thrones, right? When the, when the elders are sitting on, or 24 elders are sitting on the 24 thrones judging the sons of Israel, um, the, those are not earthly thrones. Those are thrones in heaven, right? Um, and so, and, and yeah, you kind of go all the way through the, the lamb is on his throne and God is on his throne. And then you come to the book of or chapter 20, which talks about, um, the, uh, millennial reign and it talks about a throne and we kind of think, oh, that's an earthly throne. Well, but if you look at the greater context of all of the book of Revelation, thrones are in heaven, not on earth. So that's, uh, that's kind of where that justification comes in. And so because Jesus is ruling and reigning now, because all authority has been given to him, therefore, Satan is bound. Okay? Satan is bound. Now, it's important to make a distinction between... Um, what will automatically arise in your head, which is to say, Satan is not bound. There is still demonic activity. He, you know, there is still a, an active um, spiritual presence in the world that is distinctly not Christian, and that's so true. Does it say bound or restrained? Uh, in well, in my translation, it says bound. And this one here, it says chapter twenty, verse two, it says bound. Yeah. Bound him so he could no longer deceive the nations. Um, and so the way that we think about the binding of Satan is different, right? So when, from a literalist perspective, you look at 
the binding of Satan, you generally tend to think that that means that Satan is completely universally covered up, right? That he is, that there is no satanic activity at all. Well, that's common sense would tell you that, wouldn't it? Except that when it says in verse, uh, well, then it says, when it says in verse one, that I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient servant who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years threw him in the pit, shut it, and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So, very specific activity. He might not deceive the nations. Okay, Is that the only activity of Satan? He's doing mm -hmm. primary goals right now. Yeah. He, it, it is one of his activities. Right, but not all. Right? But it's not the only activity that he, that he does, right? He, he tempts and he torments and he attacks and he accuses and he lies and he, you know, commands his servants to do the same, right? And, and so if you compare, uh, say, pre-Christ to post-Christ and you see the relationship between God and the nations, there's a dramatic shift, right? Because in the Old Testament, basically, it was the Jews, with a few Gentiles peppered in here and there. When you come, and, and that's because he's deceiving the nations. Satan is allowed to deceive the nations at this time. Then Jesus comes, establishes his kingdom, sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. Satan is now bound so he can no longer deceive the nations. And now the entire world is seeing explosive gospel faith because Satan is not deceiving the nations anymore, right? There are Chinese Christians, there are European Christians. We're not Jews, right? But we are saved because Satan is no longer able to deceive the nations, right? Um, God has now, has now taken that activity of Satan and put it aside so that he can no longer do it. And now look at all of the people all over the planet that are getting saved who are not Jews, right? So, um, this is explained a little bit better in Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 29, which says, oh boy, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house, right? So Jesus is saying that he's going to come into Satan's house, which is the world, right? Satan is the prince of the power of the air. You know, he said to Jesus at the temptation, all this has been given to me, right? And so what Jesus is saying is that I'm going to plunder his goods, right? I'm going to take people from all the nations, right? And I'm going to make them mine. And so first I'm going to bind him so that he can't stop me from doing that. And then I'm going to plunder his goods. Um, in John chapter 12. John twelve thirty one. See the correlation. All power had been given to him. Say again. All power had been given to him. Well, we started off by saying all power had been given to me. Yeah. So then, why would he worry about what power the devil might have against him when he goes to do what he wants to do? Well, that's what. Well, yeah. I mean, it is a parable, right? How can someone plunder a man's goods unless he first binds the strong man, right? It's a parable. Yeah. Right. So what he's saying is that I'm going to take what's mine. And I'm going to bind Satan so that he can't, so that he has no activity to be able to stop him, right? Which but how, how would the which, devil be able to thwart the Holy Spirit though? Right, but Holy yeah, you're right. 
Because, like, he can't because he's bound. No, right? all, power, all power was given to Christ. So That's right, to bind Satan. To what? <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm looking from a negative point here. I, don't, I yeah. wouldn't have to bind Satan because he doesn't have any power over me. That's true. But, okay, but, uh, no, Satan still is given activity in the world, right? God has given Satan activity in the world, right? Right, well, you tried to make that difference there, and I, yeah, I'm still working on that. But, you know, so, like, you look at, um, uh, uh, maybe an example of this is, is the interaction between God and Satan and Job, right? And so, there were a whole bunch of things that Satan did to Job, none of which was deceiving Job, Right? He wasn't, he didn't take away Job's faith, right? And so there was a whole bunch of activity that he did. He struck him physically. He attacked his family. He, you know, all kinds of things, right? And the Lord allowed him to do that. And, and here in the New Testament, the Lord still allows him to do things, but he is bound in this one particular area that he can no longer deceive the nations because he's bound, Right? And the Lord has given him activity. We, we know that, right? The Lord has allowed him to work. Um, and, and yeah, the Lord could throw him into the lake of fire tomorrow if he wanted to. But, and we don't know why he doesn't. But we have to kind of, yeah, so we have to kind of take, yeah, we have to kind of take the scriptures for what they give us, right? No, it's, I know, I, I agree. Um, John 12. John twelve thirty one. 31. Uh, now, the, now is the judgment of the world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will be from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Right? So Jesus is saying, like, I'm about to be crucified. This is coming. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now. He's not saying... After the church age and when I establish my millennial reign, Satan will be cast out and then brought back in. What he's saying is now the ruler of this world will be cast out because now is the judgment of this world. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, right? That sounds like the ascension, right? He's not saying when he's coming down. He's saying when he is lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Right? And so he's talking about the nations there, right? So the, the ruler of the world, who is the devil, has now been replaced by the new ruler of the world, which is Jesus. And Jesus is now sitting on his throne and he is gathering his people. Uh, and, and Satan is not given the ability to thwart this process the, where the gospel goes forth. Um, yeah, and, and people disbelieve the gospel not because the devil lies to them but because their own hearts are made of stone right and so satan satan is not the cause of your family members unbelief right their own hardness of heart is the cause of their unbelief and so we don't have to not we don't have to say because satan's bound so everybody should get saved well satan helps with unbelief right like he encourages unbelief but he doesn't cause unbelief um yeah so yeah he didn't make them fight the apple that's right that's right they they had that all on their own still have that choice no yeah one. that's right um yeah so the the saints um 
this is point number three. The, the saints are reigning with Jesus, and there has already been the first resurrection. So what we're, again, I want to stress that this is, you're taking, we're taking a symbolic reading of the end times. Uh, and so when it says that the saints are going to be resurrected, we take that and we question, is this symbolic or is this literal? Um, and so the idea here is that the, res the first resurrection of the saints is symbolic. So Revelation 20 verse 4 says that the saints are, are ra raised from the dead to reign with Christ for a thousand years. Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 6 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that at the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, right? So he's talking about a spiritual resurrection that, well, and we've talked about this before, that this is the sign of the new birth where a, a person's dead heart and spirit is brought to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And so this is a spiritual resurrection that occurs when people get saved, right? And so the, uh, the idea is that the resurrection that's talked about in Revelation 20 verse 4 is the same resurrection that's talked about in Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 6. 4 through 6? Yeah, 4 through 6, um, which is a spiritual resurrection. And so now the, the saints are reigning with Jesus because we are his people, right? We have been adopted. We have been changed. We have been raised to life, right? Um, and w this is one of the problems that, that literalists have a very difficult time explaining is um, how can Jesus come, raise up the Christians, but have uh, into new resurrected bodies, but still have unbelievers in their old um, broken down bodies living together on the same earth at the same time, right? Um, that, that's a difficult one to explain, right? Um, and, and there are people who, who do provide um, good and interesting answers. I'm not going to jump into them, but it is one of the questions that arises. That's, that's all I wanted to say. Um, and I, I don't want to characterize anybody uh, who believes something other than what I'm teaching here as stupid. Um, one of the complaints that I have is in studying these things and reading that on, on kind of all sides of the issue, people looked at people who disagreed and basically said, the reason they disagree is because they're stupid. And I think that that's ridiculous. I, I don't think that that's fair. I think that people can come up with things from a different perspective and still be intelligent people who are seeking to give glory to God. And so I want to stress that I, because this is such a tendency for some reason, in talking about end times, there's people get weird about end times. They get angry. They fight about it. Because you're it's, not right. Well, maybe, yeah, but like... I, I just never got there. Like, I know, but like, you know, I was listening to one guy say, like, he was uh, applying at a church one time to be a pastor there, and he said, I, I could have disagreed with them on spiritual gifts I could have disagreed with them on women in ministry. I could have disagreed with them on um, mode of baptism. I could have disagreed with all kinds of things. 
But one thing that I was not allowed to disagree with was the end times. And to me, like, what? Yeah, that's what he said. He said, if I disagreed with them on the end times, they would not have hired me. That, that was, crazy. yeah, exactly. You know, that, and that's dumb. That's, that's making a mountain out of a molehill. It's making a major uh, out of a minor, right? And, and yeah, like I said before, I think that these are important to talk about. But yeah, because it's interesting and it will impact the way that you read the Bible. But dang, like, let's not, let's not pretend that we have the fountain of wisdom here. Right. And so anyway, I, I just want to stress that um, for anybody listening at home, uh, that uh, I don't believe that, that people are stupid for disagreeing with me. First um, Corinthians uh, 15, 23 to 25. Uh, this kind of gives a, a summarization of, of uh, the, the mentality behind the amillennial view. So, um, yeah, 1 Corinthians 15, 23. Or actually, we'll start with 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. Okay, so what he's saying here is that you, well, if you, if you just look at the passage and you see it's talking about bodily resurrection, right? So Jesus, first of all, was bodily resurrected, okay? Um, then in verse, yeah, so this is verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, right? So the, sec- the resurrection of Christians comes at the second coming of Christ. And then what happens after the second coming of Christ? Then comes the end, right? So there's, the Bible talks about two ages. There's this present evil age and the age to come, right? It doesn't say that there is the present evil age, the millennial reign, and then the age to come, right? Overwhelmingly, it's the present evil age and the age to come. And so what we're talking about in this specific passage is in relation to the resurrection that it's going to come, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of people is going to come after the millennial reign of Christ. That Christ is going to rule. Um, and, and so what it says in, in uh, verse 24, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So that happens, the end comes, and, and the resurrection happens after... Uh, he delivers the kingdom to his father and puts every rule and every or and destroys every rule and every authority and every power in, and in verse 25 for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet right so he is reigning now and he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death right and so what happens a lot of time is when you believe in, in the more literalist perspective is that you believe that when Jesus returns to establish the millennial reign, that the first thing that he, the first enemy that he defeats is death, right? Because he raises up his saints to reign with him. And then later on, he destroys the devil. He destroys those who follow the devil, who have the mark and cast them into the lake of fire, right? But if you come back to 
the amillennial perspective, you have the present evil age, the age to come, you have Jesus reigning, and that he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be defeated is death, right? And so he defeats death, remakes the new heavens and the new earth, and we live in paradise, right? That's where the final judgment comes, death is no more, and, and we're on our way. Um, yeah, verse, uh, the point of this, of reading this passage is that verse 24 comes right after verse 23. There isn't a thousand year gap between verse 24 and verse 23. At least, um, Paul doesn't give us an indication of that. Um, Matthew 13. This is, if you're taking notes, point number five. Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 37. Jesus is explaining the parable of the weeds. He says, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin all lawbreakers, throw them into the fiery furnace, that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? So when is the final judgment? When are people thrown into the lake of fire? Well, according to Revelation chapter 20, right before Jesus remakes the heavens and the earth. Right. Uh, and so to to kind of have the the idea of the separation of, of and the resurrection and, and all of these things to happen before the millennial reign of Christ, it puts these things out of order. Um, no one gets thrown into the lake of fire until the. I just want to make sure that I'm quoting correctly from Revelation 20. Yeah, then the thousand years are ended and Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And there they were tormented day and night forever and ever. And then it goes on to describe the... Um, the the rest of the final judgment anyone whose name this is verse 15 of revelation 20 if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire and this happens all after the millennial reign after the thousand years are ended um whereas if you yeah anyway so um but we aren't given how long is a short time yeah that's true that could be 500 years, it's true, yeah, because in First Peter it says, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, to the Lord a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and like I say, there, you know, every single one of these, I'm not going to pretend that none of these three views have problems, <laughs> or don't have problems, right? Because they do, right? They all have questions that are difficult to answer. Um, I'm, yeah, and so I'm happy to, to talk about the questions and, and to deal with the problems, but um, 
I don't want to give the impression that I don't think that there's a problem, that there are any problems. Um, yeah, so, and then uh, point number six, Satan is loosed at the end of the age, and therefore, that is, uh, uh, and before the day of the Lord, right? So in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 5, 2, it talks about the day of the Lord, um, which is what, uh, from this perspective, the day of the Lord is something that happens um, after the millennial reign and before the, the remaking of the heavens and the earth. So it's all kind of the last day, um, which, I mean, it might, not, it might be more than a day, but this is the point. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. Uh, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying... There is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Um, oh, I, I overshot, didn't I? Yeah, so the day of the Lord is the return of Christ. Um, the, the, the more literalist perspective would say that, that Jesus comes back halfway, goes away, and then comes back all the way later. Uh, that's so the, that would be the rapture, right? So he comes down and, and we who are alive will meet the Lord in the air and then they will go and, and, and then Jesus will come back later, right? So what they would say is that this is not describing the end. Uh, this, is, this is describing something that happens later. And so then in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2, it says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken, in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself and against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Um, right. And so yeah, from the amillennial perspective, all of this is happening. This is the day of the Lord. It happens at the end of the millennium and before the uh, the remaking of the universe. Um, yeah, and so Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three, talking about the day of the Lord, that. Uh, yeah, and, and this is, the Apostle Peter talked about the day of the Lord. And when he talked about it, what he's talking about is that the return of Christ, the day of the Lord, will happen, be, and, and that will be when the heavens and the earth are remade. So, um, 2 Peter 3, in verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since thus, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought to be in lives of God? Right. So, um, oh, oh yeah. Okay. Uh, waiting for the. So this is verse twelve of Second Peter ten. Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. 
But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So if you compare this passage to the first Thessalonians and second Thessalonians passages, which are talking about the day of the Lord, right? The apostle Peter is saying that the day of the Lord is going to be when Jesus remakes the new heavens and the new earth. From, from the other perspective, if you were to take uh, just first Thessalonians all by itself, it would make sense to say, you know, Jesus is going to come halfway back. He's going to gather up his people. And then you compare it to Revelation and say, okay, and then Jesus is going to come back physically and he's going to establish his reign. But if you look at, if you bring in this Peter, or the second Peter passage, then you have the day of the Lord is something that comes as Jesus is remaking the new heavens and the new earth. Meaning this, the idea of the rapture on the day of the Lord is something that is happening right before the earth is remade, right? It's not something that comes before the millennial reign, right? Yes, there is a rapture, but it's not happening before it's happening at the end. Um, because this is the, the heavens will pass away with a roar when on the day of the Lord. And there's no indication that there are multiple days of the Lord, right? There is the day of the Lord, right? There's not the a day of the Lord in which there are people who are raptured and then another day of the Lord where Jesus remakes the new heavens and the new earth, right? And there's a final judgment. There's just one, right? There is the day of the Lord. Um, and so what we can't have, according to the second Peter passage, is the day of the Lord coming and then having a thousand years and then having everything pass away because this happens, the day of the Lord is the passing away of the heavens and the earth. So, um, right. And so then um, there's uh, the, the passage in Matthew 24 brings in a whole nother, um, oh man, we're almost done. Well, okay, my brother is probably going to talk about Matthew 24 um, and, and what's going on there. Um, Forrest, if you're listening, you have to do that. Um, I'll call him. Uh, yeah, uh, one, one of the things that I did want to bring up really quickly um, was the, the idea of the true Israel and, and the false Israel um, and what, what we can expect from, uh, from God about Israel. Um, and I just want to bring up to you um, Romans 9 really quickly. In, when we are trying to discern um, the promises made to Israel and the promises made to the church, um, I don't believe that um, there is going to be um, a resurgence of Israel or uh, of the, that ethnic Jews are going to have a special time at the end. I believe that the true Israel is the church, that the church is the true Israel. Uh, so, and this is because of, Re of Romans 9, 6, which says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, 
The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so I, I just want to point out this idea of not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But it is those who have faith in God who are the true children of Abraham. This is something that's also in Romans chapter 4. Um, something for your study. Uh, I want to give it to you. Uh, and if you want to, to look this up later, Revelation uh, contains seven parallel narratives. Not, it's not one congruent narrative. It's seven, seven different accounts of the same events, just from different perspectives. So if you want to know what those are, I can send those to you. Um, there, yeah. So that is all. We are out of time. I could talk for probably a while longer. Thank you for listening. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Next week, we'll have my brother who will explain a different perspective, which will probably twist your brain up more than this one. So, all right. Thank you.